This is A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends, a podcast ministry of Somebody Cares America, being a tangible expression of Christ in a hurting world. Welcome to another Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. Recently, I participated in a gathering called The Return. It was a national and global call to repentance for the church to take a right posture before God on behalf of our nation and for the nations of the world. It was held in Washington, D.C., where thousands upon thousands gathered together in humble posture and in a posture of repentance. Now, my portion was to speak and to pray about the areas of idolatry. That was very dear to me because it's been on my heart for a long time that how can we serve at the table of the Lord and the table of the world? In fact, if we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let's look at that for a moment and just bear with me because I believe it's important to look at this scripture. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it gives an Old Testament example. It says, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted. And the very first one it talked about in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 10, And do not become idolaters, as were some of them. As it is written, The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Then it goes on to say, Nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. And verse 9 says, Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted, and were destroyed by serpents. And verse 10 says, Nor complain or murmur or gossip or backbite, as some of them also complained, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened for them as an example, and they were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except such as the common to man, but God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape, that you may be able to bear it. In verse 14, he goes on to say, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourself what I say. Now, I just want to pause for a moment, because what's coming into the next few verses is pretty heavy. And that what God is saying to us, and I shared during the return, I said, as I prayed, I said, idolatry is anything that masters or possesses our affections above Jesus as a Christian. When you think about that, we would never call ourselves a Baal worshiper or call us those who are worshiping Tammuz or, you know, weeping over the the desire for the world and the things of God at the same time, wanting our cake and eat it too, so to speak. And yet anytime we allow our passions or we have a passion for anything more than the Lord, it becomes a form of idol worship, doesn't it? It says in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians 10, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we are partakers of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols, anything? 
Rather than the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. Well, when I read this years ago, I was thinking, wait a minute. What the Apostle Paul is talking about here in preparation for communion is saying, look, how can you take communion and fellowship with God and still be a partaker of the things of the world and sacrifice at the altar of the, of the world or of demons? And he goes on to actually say that. He says in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he is? Now let's go back again to verse 17. For we, though many, are one bread and one body. For we are partakers of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then, he says, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. What Paul is saying, he's contending here, and he's actually speaking out from the passion of his heart, saying, look, you can't live in both worlds. Either you're going to offer the sacrifice at, of the table of the Lord, or you're sacrificing to demons. Now, again, none of us would say, oh, I can't wait to go sacrifice at some altar of the demons. No, but the reality is when we give our passions and our hearts to compromise our convictions uh, from our relationship with God to the things of the world, we then begin to fall into the digression of offering ourselves into the ways of the world. And so verse 21, then when you understand communion, he's saying you cannot drink of the cup of the Lord. We're talking about communion here. We cannot partake of the bread of the world and communion with God at the same time expecting to walk in the fullness of the Godhead bodily if we are partaking at the table of demons. He goes, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. When I began to process that years ago, I begin to recognize the importance of no compromise. Look, I'm not saying that any of us are perfect. We all are saved by grace. And thank God for the great sacrifice of love that was given to us on the cross of Calvary. The so high cost of love that was bestowed upon us that we can walk in the fullness of God's grace and mercy. But at the same time, we have a responsibility that we choose to follow after Christ, that we choose life and not choose death, that we choose the things of God and not the things of this world, that we choose to walk in that place of this great salvation. Oh, that we would understand that God desires for us to walk in the fullness of his blessings, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the fullness of relationship, because the kingdom of God is built on relationships. But so often we get our eyes off of the tree of life, as I've shared in the past, and we begin to look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if we already have a good with the Lord, what are we going to gain by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? We gain evil. And too often we fall for that lie. We don't walk in discernment. We walk in the pleasures of the flesh rather than the place of the Spirit of God because Scripture says that the flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit wars against the flesh. I want to read just something to you that I wrote in 2004 in the context of where we are even as a nation and a generation. And it's interesting because I wrote this and published it originally in October of 2004. And I believe by the time you hear this podcast, it will be October the 5th or 6th of 2020, 16 years later. I wrote this article. It was called Battle for the Moral Soul of America. 
I think we all recognize there is literally a battle for the soul of a generation, and there's been a battle raging for years, and we're seeing it right before our very eyes, a battle for the soul of America. I know some political leaders have been using that term, there's a battle for America, battle for the soul of our nation. Those aren't new things. These are things many of us have been saying for many, many decades. In fact, I was with the late Dr. Bill Bright and, and the late uh, Chuck Colson and Max Locato and others. We were taping on the soul of America a few decades ago. And as we were taping, we began to talk about that. And I said, look, if we're talking about the soul of our nation, we've got to first talk about waking up the heart of the nation, which I believe is the church in every city community, state, or nation is the church. If the church's heart is weak, we need a defibrillation. We need to awaken the heart. I've been saying that for decades. It's time to wake up. The church heart must wake up. The corporate heart of the church must wake up and not fall asleep on our watch when the world around us seems to be spinning out of control. We see lawlessness. We're seeing the culmination of a form of anarchy. There is no respect, no civil civility in our public discourse. There's, there's bickering and divisiveness at every level, even in the church. It's going to take the church to recognize we must awaken if we're going to see the healing of our nation or generation. So let me just read a few things that I wrote in that article in 2004, October 2004, Battle for the Moral Soul of America. I said, our nation is at a crossroads, a turning point in history. We are in a battle for the moral soul of America, and it's a battle to destroy the very foundation on which we are founded. You cannot build on a cracked foundation, and what is already standing will inevitably fall apart. We see effort after effort to take away our beliefs. No more Ten Commandments, no more public displays of anything Christ-like. I go on to say that statistics indicate that the majority of Americans are favorable to public displays of the Ten Commandments, nativity scenes, and so on. Now, that was in 2004. We've seen a major shift since these last 16 years, but I still believe there is a majority of Americans who are favorable or at least willing to allow the freedom of expression and religion and speech, and yet there's a few in the minority that would try to take those freedoms from us. It seems to me there is a minority who are creating reverse discrimination by using the letter of the law to coerce the majority to cower to the beliefs of the few. When the spirit of the law was to bring liberty, equality, and freedom of speech to all. I'm reminded of when King Josiah recognized in 2 Kings 22 that everything in the nation had seemed to become out of order. So he began to reestablish and reinstate the law for the people to follow, which is a good thing. It's the right thing to do. But Jeremiah, as well as Zephaniah, who was a contemporary to Jeremiah, makes the reference or inference that we cannot just change laws, we cannot just reinstitute laws, we cannot legislate laws, unless we also deal with the inward corruption of our own hearts for there to be lasting change. We, the church, must first deal with our own root issues of the heart. Yes, there are systemic and broken cisterns that we see today. That's obvious. There's issues that we must address, and the church must address it together, crossing our racial, denominational, generational lines. We must be able to input our heart into the soul of our nation if we're going to bring lasting change. Changing laws alone cannot change hearts. But once the hearts are changed, the laws will naturally and progressively change. When a person has a heart attack, or for some other reason the heart stops beating, emergency workers will first use hands-on massage to manually jumpstart the heart. If that doesn't work, the next step is to use a defibrillator, which sends an electronic jolt to the heart in an effort to revive it so it can beat freely once again. Because of the cracks in our foundations, we, like a weakened heart, are on the verge of collapse. 
God has been giving us a wake-up call, but we have been pushing our snooze buttons for way too long. He has been trying to massage our hearts back to being pliable in His hands and into having life again. In my article, The Battle for the Moral Soul of America, that I wrote in October 2004, I talked about some things in the book of Hebrews that I want to share again today. The book of Hebrews tells us there are at least six things or hindrances to personal and corporate transformation and revival. One, negligence. Two, the hardening of the heart. Three, unbelief. Four, dullness of hearing. Five, resisting God. And six, refusing Him when He speaks. You see, if we don't heed these warnings, if our hearts become hardened or ignore His voice, then everything that needs to be shaken will be shaken. Hebrews 12, verse 25 through 29. And the only thing left standing will be that which is built on the foundation of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. And like the Shulamite in Song of Songs, we must be lovesick once again for God, that we would have a passion for Him that is greater than our passion for anything else. Remember, idolatry is simply this, anything that masters or possesses our affections more than Jesus. Uh, there was a pastor from Uganda that said this, Revival comes by desperation, and desperation comes one of two ways, passion or persecution. See, I pray, and I've been praying, that it would not take the distancing of God's presence or an increase of persecution or trials in our land for us to have a genuine passion for God, to long for Him once again. We've seen shaking after shaking after shaking, and yet some of us continue to push our snooze buttons. It is a wake-up call. It's been a wake-up call. I'm encouraged, though I have a hope that's within me, that there is a majority of people that long for the authenticity of God's presence. Oh, that that church would awaken, that we would have a corporate heart awakening so we can see the healing of the soul of a nation. Let me just share something else. Because there is something called temple prostitution, this goes into the what I've been talking about, idolatry. There was a gathering that I was at in Dallas, Texas, back in 16, 17 years ago, as a group of leaders, as we were discussing the soul of the nation. But something that came up was this. There are three primary things in Scripture that separates us from the presence of God, to where He even departs His presence from His people. I've shared before, and I believe this applies now, that the late A.W. Tozer used to say this, that self is the opaque veil that hides the face of God from us. You see, we become self-absorbed, self-righteous, self-centered. We begin to think that we don't need God anymore. We begin to love the things of this world. We begin to focus on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We begin to want the things of the world at the same time have a, a foot in with the kingdom of God. But here are three things that we identified, and I can share more that goes from this. But one is ritual or temple prostitution. As the church, have we prostituted ourselves to become acceptable in society? And number two, the shedding of innocent blood on the altar. We've seen so much injustice at every level, and yet we've seen an increase even in the last few years where it's been acceptable for us because of our comforts and wanting to come to the altar of comfort and ease that we're willing to overlook the shedding of innocent blood at every level. And number three, licentiousness or moral looseness. All three of these things are prominently visible and prevalent in America today. Remember, I wrote this in 2004. Now compare that to where we are in 2020. Even with all the spin in the media regarding our upcoming elections, the bottom line is this. Our upcoming election is crucial because the issues all come back to these main points. 
If there is temple prostitution, we have to ask ourselves if our institutional Christianity has become so cosmetic and high-gloss and cheap merchandise because we have prostituted ourselves by choosing to live by preference rather than conviction. The difference between serving an institutional Christianity and pursuing an impartational relationship with the living Christ is this. One is relationship that draws us into the presence of God that does a work in us that God can do work through us. Institutional Christianity, and I'm not against institutions. We need institutions to build on. It's a, it's a platform by which to build upon. But what I'm saying is we don't worship the institution of Christianity because the scripture is very clear, and I've shared in podcasts past, that it's time to ask God back into the house. Ask God back into our Christian faith. Ask God back into his church. Because we don't worship the Bethel or the Bethel, which is the house of God. We worship the El Bethel, which is the God of the house of God. We should be worshiping El of Christianity, the God of Christianity. And yet too often we've institutionalized and become crystallized in our representation of who Christ really is. The late Dr. Richard Halverson, the former chaplain of the U.S. Senate, used to say, Christianity began in the land of Palestine with the person of Jesus. It went to Greece and became a philosophy, went to Rome and became an institution, went to Western Europe and became a culture. Then it came to America and became an enterprise. Truly today, we have capitalized, even in the church, on things that will benefit us and make us feel warm and fuzzy. We serve the institution rather than God himself, the El, the God of the house of God. We live in a soundbite society, content to stay on the surface, not hungry enough to dig for the hidden treasures and the truths that God's word provides. Again, a genuine passion for God allows no room for mediocrity. We should be a people of conviction, a people of character, rather than a people who live by preference or comfort and ease. This generation, our nation needs hope again, a vision of focus and destination. King Solomon once said, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And King Hezekiah once said that we live in a day of trouble and contempt and distress because the children are ready to come forth or be birthed, but there is no strength to bring them forth. We live today in that same kind of predicament. We have a whole generation of young people either sacrificed before they're born or being brought to birth yet left with no vision of hope or purpose. We need to give a vision of hope again, a vision of purpose, a vision of destination. And we cannot do this through our institutional thinking, our institutional Christianity, through our shallow platitudes or through business as usual. We can only do this by returning to Christ as our first love and being lovesick for his presence. Our human wisdom and our man-made efforts have failed us. And as scripture tells us, unless the Lord builds a house, they who build labor in vain. Psalms 127 verse 1. We could try in the natural. We first need to be a people on our knees, passionately and desperately crying out to God in intercession, getting the commission of God and raising up to do what he tells us to do. When we are the tangible expression of Christ to those around us who are looking for hope and for purpose, they will see the light and love of Christ in us shining so brightly it will draw them to Him. Remember Matthew 5.16? Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and bring glory to your Father which is in heaven. To us as believers in Christ, we must remember that our first love, Jesus Christ, is our Savior, Healer, Deliverer, and Liberator. There is nothing too difficult for him if he truly is on the thrones of our hearts and truly back on the thrones of our pulpits of America. 
You've heard me say many, many times, from pulpits to political offices, from preachers to politicians and all in between, we need a revival of character. I love this quote by Paul in Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty where Christ has set us free and be no longer entangled with the yokes of bondage. The only one who is totally pure of heart, pure of purpose, who is liberator and justice giver is Jesus Christ. When we take him out of the equation, there is no liberty. There is no salvation, no deliverance, and no healing under heaven and earth without the name of Jesus. To take the spiritual moral values away from the people is to leave them with nothing but the journey to anarchy. You see, we cannot take lightly our responsibilities. I remember what the late Dr. Edwin Lewis Cole used to say, you cannot compensate through sacrifice what you've lost through disobedience. We have abdicated our influence in every sphere of the culture. It's time for us to re-engage, not disengage. It's time for us to let God's light shine in and through us for our neighbors, for those we work with across our cities and across our nation and around the world. We need the church to awaken. Our very futures hang in the balance, as do the futures of our families and the future generation and of our nation. Those who live outside our borders will tell us that if the church in America ever fails, so will the lives and liberties of those who dwell in other nations across the globe. As for me and my household, I choose to say, like Joshua, that we will serve the Lord. What about you? You see, we can continue to justify our actions by excuses, but we're called to be a people justified by faith. But if we look clearly at what it says in 1 Corinthians 10 again, as I alluded to in the first part of this podcast, We cannot partake of the table of demons and the table of the Lord. We cannot drink of the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. We must make a decision. Are we for the Lord or does our appetite and lust for the things of the world separate us from the Lord? So great a salvation. I'm going to conclude today's podcast with something that's been stirring in my heart. And I've shared before about the month of Tishri. In fact, that September 18th, that sundown became the beginning of the month of Tishri, which was also Rosh Hashanah, the year 5781 in the Hebrew calendar in the civil year, but the seventh month in the ecclesiastical year, which is a month of Tishri. It was in Nehemiah chapter 8 that was on the first day of the month of Tishri that Ezra stood before the people, gathered the people, began to declare the word again, the laws of God, the commandments of God, and began to read them out. The people began to recognize how untethered they had become from the place of serving God, that they had become partakers of the world and yet trying to partake at the table of the Lord. Even before we entered the year 2020, there was many who signed up together around the world as Christian leaders to declare 2020 as the global year of the Bible, getting back into God's Word. And that is such a needed place right now with all that we've been through, with the global pandemic and crises, increase of disasters all across our nation and different parts of the world. We need to get back to the Word, tethered to God's Word, so that the living Word will breathe upon the written Word so that His life would live in and through us and reach those around us. So as Ezra's reading the Word, reading the commandments of God, The people began to repent and to fall before God, realizing how far they had departed from the place of the God they said they worshipped. We too must return to our first love. And just like Nehemiah chapter 8, on the first day of the month of Tishri, when the reading of the word went forth and people began to respond, realizing how far they had become untethered, 
is where we, the church, need to come back to. That place of the love of the presence of God through worship, through knee posture, vertical worship, right hearts before Him, that God would take care of the inward areas of our own hearts if we're going to change the soul of a nation. As He began to do that, that was in the month of Tishri. And interestingly, Haggai 2, as I shared last week, Haggai 2 is also written and spoken to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and all the people on the 21st day of the month of Tishri, in which he said that the glory of the latter house should become greater than the former. Interestingly, on the 24th day of Tishri, go back to Nehemiah chapter 9, and this is a great example for us today, and I'm going to conclude with this, and it might be a little bit lengthy, so just go back and listen to it again. I'm just going to read the word in closing, because it's a word where the people confess their sins in Nehemiah chapter 9, after hearing the word of God on the first day of Tishri, now on the 24th day of Tishri, it says this in Nehemiah chapter 9. This is where the people confess their sins. Now on the 24th day of the month of Tishri, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth and with dust on their heads. In other words, they were in true humility. That's what's been happening across our nation. I'm so encouraged to see churches across America and around the world, millions upon millions, joining together in fasting, in prayer, and seeking God, in authentic humility before God, repentance of individual and corporate sins of the land. And it goes on to say that those of Israel's lineage separated themselves from all foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now what they were doing is as they were hearing the word of God, recognizing we've become such a part of mingling our seed with the things of the world. And a spiritual context for us is if we have become so mingled with the world and compromise our convictions that God has given us in such a great salvation. Again, we don't do it by works. We are not justified by, by the works that we do. We're justified by faith. Our faith is in Christ. We have this abounding, amazing, and great grace bestowed upon us. But at the same time, if we are in God's Word and His Word lives in us and the living Word works in and through us, let us recognize where we have compromised with the world. We have lusted after the things of the world. We have become Baal worshippers. We have other things that mastered or possesses our affections more than the things of Christ who we call our Lord. And so as they recognize this in Nehemiah chapter 9, they stood up in that place and they began to cry out to God. The leaders and the people gathered to confess their sins and worship the Lord their God, began to read aloud the book of the law, or the, the word of God for us. And the Levites stood before the people with some of the leaders, and here's what they began to say. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Would you let this, what I'm about to read from Scripture, become our prayer? Let us become a declaration to recovenant with our God for the healing of our nation. Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be the glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven and heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God, who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur, of the Chaldeans, and gave him the name of Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you, and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, and the Jebusites, the Gigashites, to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. He's speaking to God. You saw the affliction 
of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. You showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, and against all the peoples of his land. For you knew that they acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is in this day. And you divided the Red Sea before them. So when they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and their persecutors you threw into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the road which they should travel. You came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven in their hunger and brought them water out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. But they and their fathers acted proudly, hardened their necks, and did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion they appointed a leader to return to their bondage. But you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molded calf for themselves and said, This is your God that brought you up out of Egypt and worked great provocations. Yet in your manifold mercies you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them in the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Moreover, you gave them kingdoms and nations, and divided them into districts, so they took possession of the land of Sihon, the land of the king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You also multiplied their children as the stars of the heaven and brought them into the land which you had told their fathers to go in and possess. So the people went in and possessed the land. You subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they wished. And they took strong cities and a rich land and possessed houses full of all goods, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and grew fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, cast your law behind their backs, and killed their prophets, who testified against them to turn them to yourself, and they worshipped great provocations. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their enemies, who oppressed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried to you, you heard from heaven, and according to your abundant mercies, you gave them deliverers who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they again did evil before you. Therefore you left them in the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they returned again and cried out to you, you heard from heaven, and many times... You delivered them according to your mercies and testified against them that you might bring them back to your law. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed your commandments, but sinned against your judgments. 
which if a man does, he shall live by them. And they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Yet for many years you had patience with them, and testified against them by your spirit and your prophets, yet they would not listen. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercy, you did not utterly consume them nor forsake them, for you are God, gracious and merciful. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do not let all the trouble seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our princes, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until this day. However, you are just in all that has befalled us, but you have dealt faithfully, but we have done wickedly. Neither our kings nor our princes, our priests nor our fathers have kept your law, nor heeded your commandments and your testimonies, with which you testified against them. For they have not served you in their kingdom, or in the many good things that you have given them, or in the large and rich land which you set before them, nor did they turn from their wicked works. Here we are servants today, and the land that you gave us to our fathers, to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it, and it yields much increase to the kings that you have set over us because our sins. Also they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. Wow. If we go back and reread this, now, of course, we're not living according to the letter of the law. It's the Old Testament. But there's so much we can get out of this because our human nature is to move towards human depravity. We're living in a culture and a season at a time. We're seeing increase of apostasy, increase of false teaching, even an attack on the church and the name of the Lord himself. But we, God's people, we can't point our fingers at everyone else because Second Chronicles 7.14 is a great example to us. If my people who are called by my name, would humble themselves and pray and seek my face and then turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and heal the land. We are in a desperate need for the healing of the soul of our nation, for the healing of our generation. But it starts with you and me. The heart of the nation should be the church. Church, let us awaken. Let us stop pushing our snooze buttons. Let us be awakened, a corporate heart awakening, crossing our racial, denominational, generational lines, meaning the cross of Christ together. Let's not let our personal denominational preferences, our personal opinions, even our political preferences, those are things that are important to each of us. But let us first come to the centrality of the cross as I've shared in the past. Let's come to that place of recognizing if it not be for the grace of God, where would we be? Each and every one of us, while we're still yet in our sin, Jesus came and died for us. He called us out of our sin. He placed his hand upon us, gave us a commission, the privilege of his calling, that his light would shine in us and through us. Church, let's be the church. Yes, we have areas of division. Yes, we have areas of disagreements. We have our own opinions. But can we at least bring it through the filter of God's word and the place of humility together, recognizing we have so much more in common than we do that separates us? Let us pray right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray if there be anything that has had our affections or our hearts more than Jesus, if there have been any form of idolatry in our lives, if we have come before the table of the Lord 
and the table of the world are demons. Let us, Lord, see the distinction and no longer be in the world and in the kingdom. God, I pray for the kingdom of God. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, let your kingdom penetrate our hearts and lives and thinking. Let your kingdom change us and let your kingdom together, your people, the body of Christ, be a corporate one new man, one blood from every nation, that we be in one accord that the world will see that Jesus Christ is Lord. Our only hope for this nation, our only hope for this generation is for the church to awaken together and to be the church. God, I know we have different preferences, different opinions, different persuasions, but God, I pray we'd come together in that which is most important, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we are coming to the table of the Lord together, communing with you, because in that place, you can do what only you can do in and through your church. God, forgive us where we've had areas of idolatry. Forgive us We've loved the world and lusted after the things of the world. For the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Forgive us, Lord. We've built our own kingdoms rather than being a part of your kingdom and seeing your kingdom advanced and lives being changed. We pray for saved lives, revival, and souls, God, added to the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name, amen. You're in need of prayer today. You can send us prayer requests, prayer at somebodycares.org. You can also call our prayer line, 855-459-2273. And keep up to date with all that we're doing by following us on Instagram, at Somebody Cares America, Facebook, or our YouTube channel. Or you can sign up for email updates at somebodycares.org. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.